You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There were four of us down there for the first 32 months and 11 days of our captivity. And then, very suddenly and without warning, there were three. Even though the fourth person hadn't made any noise at all in several months, the room got very quiet when she was gone. For a long time after that, we sat in silence, in the dark, wondering which of us would be next in the box. Jennifer and I, of all people, should not have ended up in that cellar. We were not your average 18-year-old girls abandoning all caution once set loose for the first time on a college campus. We took our freedom seriously and monitored it so carefully it almost didn't exist anymore. We knew what was out there in that big wide world better than anyone and we weren't going to let it get us. We had spent years methodically studying and documenting every danger that could possibly ever touch us. Avalanches, disease, earthquakes, car crashes, sociopaths and wild animals, all the evils that might lurk outside our window. We believed our paranoia would protect us. After all, what are the odds that two girls so well-versed in disaster would be the ones to fall prey to it? For us, there was no such thing as fate. Fate was a word you used when you had not prepared, when you were slack, when you stopped paying attention. Fate was a weak man's crutch. Our caution, which verged on a mania by our late teens, had started six years earlier when we were 12. On a cold but sunny January day in 1991, Jennifer's mother drove us home from school, the same as every other weekday. I don't even remember the accident. I only recall slowly emerging into the light to the beat of the heart monitor as it chirped out the steady and comforting rhythm of my pulse. For many days after that, I felt warm and utterly safe when I first woke up, until that moment when my heart sank and my mind caught up with time. Jennifer would tell me later that she remembered the crash vividly. Her memory was typically post-traumatic, a hazy slow-motion dream with colors and lights all swirling together in a kind of operatic brilliance. They told us we were lucky, having been only seriously injured and living through the ICU, with its blur of doctors, nurses, needles, and tubes, and then four months recovering in a bare hospital room with CNN blaring in the background. Jennifer's mother had not been lucky. They put us in a room together, ostensibly so we could keep each other company for our convalescence, and, as my mother told me in a whisper, so I could help Jennifer through her grief. But I suspected the other reason was that Jennifer's father, who was divorced from her mother and an erratic drunk we had always taken pains to avoid, was only too happy when my parents volunteered to take turns sitting with us. At any rate, as our bodies slowly healed, we were left alone more often, and it was then that we started the journals. To pass the time, we said to ourselves, both probably knowing deep down that it was in fact to help us feel some control over a wild and unjust universe. The first journal was merely a notepad from our bedside table at the hospital, with Jones Memorial printed in Romanesque block letters across the top. Few would have recognized it as a journal, filled as it was only with lists of the horrors we saw on television. We had to ask the nurses for three more notepads. They must have thought we were filling our days with tic-tac-toe or hangman. In any event, no one thought to change the channel. When we got out of the hospital, we worked on our project in earnest. At the school library, we found almanacs, medical journals, and even a book of actuarial tables from 1987. We gathered data, we computed, and we recorded, filling up line after line with the raw evidence of human vulnerability. The journals were initially divided into eight basic categories, but as we got older, we learned with horror how many things there were that were worse than plane crashes, household accidents, and cancer. In stone silence and after careful deliberation, as we sat in the sunny, cheerful window seat of my bright attic bedroom, Jennifer wrote out new headings in bold black letters with her Sharpie, abduction, rape, and murder. The statistics gave us such comfort. Knowledge is power, after all. We knew we had a one in two million chance of being killed by a tornado, a one in 310,000 chance of dying in a plane crash, and a one in 500,000 chance of being killed by an asteroid hitting Earth. In our warped view of probability, the very fact that we had memorized this endless slate of figures somehow changed our odds for the better. Magical thinking, our therapists would later call it, in the year after I came home to find all 17 of the journals in a pile on our kitchen table, and both my parents sitting there waiting with tears in their eyes.
Kothi Zan has practiced entertainment law for more than 15 years, working in film, television, theater, and most recently for MTV. Her first novel of crime fiction is The Never List. Thank you for joining me, Kothi. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an interesting novel, and I'd like you to describe, just give us kind of the basic setup. Uh, mm -hmm. We hear some very interesting, a lot happens in the first two pages. <laughs> um, the book is about uh, Sarah Farber, a 31-year-old woman, who, when she was in college, was abducted along with her best friend and held captive with two other women in a basement. Now it's 10 years later, and she's still struggling psychologically to deal with that experience, and she's still grieving over her best friend who didn't make it out. And now her abductor is sending her twisted letters from jail, and it sends her on, out to solve another crime uh, that's even more terrifying than what she'd been through already. One of the things that struck me was the veracity of some of your locations in the South, and I think that comes from personal experience. <laughs> That's right. Um, I was born and raised in Alabama. In fact, I lived there until I was 21, and uh, I spent an awful lot of time in New Orleans when I was in college. Talk about uh, th that kind of atmosphere, that rural atmosphere, there's a certain kind of creepiness to it, I think, just by virtue of the isolation there. And I'm wondering, as a writer, when you were growing up, what kind of stuff did you read? I mean, you were immersed in a Southern Gothic world. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, definitely of the, of the Southern writers, I'm, I'm a huge Flannery O'Connor fan and also Tennessee Williams. And I think that they both, you know, bring to bear a lot of the, the strange pathos of the South. But... I certainly was not limiting my reading to, to, to Southern writers. In fact, I, I, I grew up in a family of scientists, and no one read fiction at all. Uh, all of the textbook, all the books in our house were textbooks. And then um, when I was about nine years old, I found in a hidden drawer my um, mother's Norton anthologies from the one required freshman English class she'd had to take in college. I attribute that to sort of saving my life because it turned me into a huge reader. I, I just read those things cover to cover. And um, after that, I read, you know, all the, the classics. And then I, as I got older, I then got into crime fiction, starting with Patricia Highsmith, Graham Greene, that sort of thing. That's such a fortuitous discovery to have your first uh fictional find be a Norton anthology. Yeah, no, it, it's it's pretty strange, and, and it, I think it it develops in you a pretty high tolerance for reading uh, difficult material, because it was some pretty sophisticated stuff, Milton or, you know, George Bernard Shaw, I just, I didn't know, I just read it. <laughs> I can't say that the Never List is difficult reading, except in terms of cranking up the terror. It's, <laughs> it's a surprisingly, I think, very easy read. Uh, we meet Sarah, and she's our narrator, and it takes us a little while to be a, begin to wonder just how reliable she is, given the trauma she's experienced. I'd like you to talk about creating her voice in prose and how much her voice changed during the writing of the project. Did you know the plot? Were you informed by what happens towards the end of the book uh, at, to create the voice we encounter at the beginning? Mm -hmm. uh yeah, I mean, I, the way that I wrote it was, you know, I had the idea for the character, and I knew I knew the, the beginning setup, and I and I knew the big ending, and I was really plotted as I went along. I sort of let the book carry me where it needed to go because the main thing was that I knew what Sarah's uh, character development was going to be. I knew her her arc, and um, so. I, because I just started at the beginning of the book and, and, and moved through it, figuring it out as I went, her voice changes in, you know, that she's growing stronger, but I think it's still very consistent with who she is because I don't think she's, um, you know, it's not a straight trajectory for her and it never, and it never will be, you know, her, she's not going to have, because, uh, you know, one of the big questions is the, of the book is, can you recover from such an experience? Can you even recover, and how, can you integrate it into your life? And I think that that kind of recovery is, um, you know, really a two steps forward, one step back, and you know, it's not it's not a straight line to, to so to the point where some, suddenly everything's okay. And I think that shows in her voice. 
Uh, that's one of the things I think I really enjoyed about the book was the way her voice modulates as she becomes more and more immersed in in what's going on around her. When we meet her, she's very isolated and still clearly suffering from PTSD. As a, did you do research into the kind of the victimology and victim reactions? Yeah, I, I've have done a lot of research and into the psychology of it, and um, so I had a good I had a good sense of it. And um, but yeah, in a way though, you 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 get I was so immersed in this character, and a lot of the way that I would prepare to write is I would go on these long three mile walks. And I would just think about my characters interacting, particularly uh, the three girls. And it was not scenes that, the scenes didn't make it into the book, but it was just really me getting to know them and who they were. And I had a very strong sense of who they were uh, all the time. So I didn't have to think that much about her voice. You know, it was so natural. And in fact, sometimes I would think, okay, today I'm writing, you know, such and such scene. And this is what's going to happen. And then I would sit down to write, and the characters' voices wouldn't really let me write it because some, somewhere in my head I knew, well, Tracy would never say it that way. She would never do that. She would never let such and such happen. And you get to that sort of magical place where they take over and you let it go. It, one of the things I, I love so much about this book is the way uh, the story is told because you have – at once, it seems very simple and straightforward, but the further we go into it, the twistier and more complicated it becomes. That's a lot, lot of fun, and I'm wondering if you talk a, a little bit about uh, plotting this out. As you wrote it, did you start to find yourself having to create graphs and, and timelines to make sure that everything worked out? I probably should have, but I didn't. I I think I was... This, this book occupied so much of my brain that I, I was very much aware of what was happening, you know, at what part of the book. And um, so I, I, I didn't really need a timeline. It sounds it, like you method acted your way through the book. You know what? I, I, I really think that's true. I, I feel like I <laughs> experienced that book. It was so, it was a, writing it was a very emotional experience. And, um, you know, I would write it every day at the same time from 5 to 6 in the morning, so I would have to really get my head in that space. And, you know, I, so, some people were surprised that I could be writing such dark material and then lead the rest of my life, you know, take the kids to school and make the lunches and do all that. But I really compartmentalized it, so that was sort of my time to go into this dark space. Written in the dark about the dark, very dark. Yes, that's true, yes. It was written in a basement, in my basement, that um, had stone floors, stone walls. So, you know, I really, I, that, that probably helped. <laughs> that, uh, that's an eerie uh, echo of what happens in the book. This book has some really interesting concepts. I mean, just the language on the first two pages, we hear about freedom, we hear about captivity, we hear about, you know, what the never I mean there's all sorts of uh, interesting juggling that goes on here in in Sarah's mind so I'd like you to talk about yeah. these concepts uh, the way they play out in the book yeah um, I like to joke that it's a novel of ideas <laughs> because it it was because for me it, it sort of is I, I had a lot of um, of you know ideas and and concepts that I wanted to get into the book, and there were things that I think about a lot and that trouble me, and so it was very helpful for me to use this book to think about them and explore them. And one of them is, you know, fate and statistics and probability and and control over your life. Because I have always felt, I've always had this drive that personally, if I know every single thing that can possibly happen to me, if I know you know, all the bad things that can happen, I'm going to be able to protect myself against them. And, you know, my characters share this, but... It's worked out better for you. It's worked out better for me. It's worked out better for me. Uh, It's actually probably been pretty effective for me. Uh, But 
to do that, to live that way, is, you know, you sacrifice things. You, you know, you sacrifice a little bit of your freedom. You don't do things that you might otherwise want to do because they're not safe. And, um, and so then the question is, and, and is it your fate to have something happen anyway? And so that's one of the ideas that I, that I like to play with in, in the book as well. Well, at one point, your uh, character thinks we hadn't counted on actual evil as our enemy rather than blind statistical probability. And I think that's uh, an interesting perception of evil as an external force or embodied in external people. And we find that in this book. Right, right. It, yeah, it's the, di- the a disaster concept. Like, is there just going to be a catastrophe or is, is, is this a purposeful thing and you're the, the object of someone's actions. One of, one of the titles that I had thought about, you know, when you're bouncing around many titles for the book was Subject Object, because I felt like there were a lot of, there, there were a lot of issues there about whether you're, you're someone's subject or someone's object and how you can become, turn, you know, really transform from an object to the subject, as, as I think Sarah does here. But um, the you know, the other main idea in the book is obviously uh, power relationships. Even though the book is ostensibly a book about torture and abduction and captivity, which would seem to be a book about, uh, you know, women's powerlessness and vulnerability. You know, for me, I think this book is is really more about female empowerment and resilience because it really, I wrote it, out of admiration for women who have been through these kinds of experiences, and experiences that are not even this extreme, but you know, just very terrible, abusive, traumatic situations, and the strength that people seem to find in themselves. And I was very interested in how people find that strength, and you know, not just where it comes from, but what you have to decide to change about yourself, how you have to adapt to your circumstances, because I, I think it's incredible how adaptable the human spirit is. And, you know, whether it's becoming complicit with your abductor when you have to be, or being passive when what you really want to do is fight back, that people are able to survive and that the drive to survive is so strong that you're able to have these radical changes in who you are in order to get through it. You know, it's so interesting in the book because as readers, the way we experience this is you have two essential time tracks going on. We're learning about what happened while they were in captivity, but we're also watching things happen in this 10 years after uh, segment and the characters are going through changes in each one and we have to learn about them. And I think that's an interesting dynamic as a writer. Talk about uh, contrasting those two timelines and playing them off of one another. Well, you know, it really, it it just happened so naturally. And because for me, you know, I had imagined the the experience in the cellar so vividly and then I had imagined what it would be like in the aftermath. So for me, going back and forth, it, you know, it was natural, and I would sort of decide what should happen, you know, which, what time they should be, I should be writing about, totally by gut. You know, I would say, okay, well, as a reader, what would be interesting? Is it, you know, does it feel like this is the moment where I would want to go back into the cellar and, and see this but, um, and reveal a little bit more of that? So I would like to say that it was some, you know, very carefully outlined plan, but I just felt like, okay, well, this is what this needs to be now. And really the book, the, the, the overall structure and the order of the scenes didn't change from the first draft. Uh, that's probably why I think why it's uh, so intense and effective. My uh, inclination is to think that uh, work that's uh, at least sometimes um, work that's outlined, once you've outlined it, you know what's going to happen. And I think that yeah. for, for you as a writer, you were scaring yourself, I get the feeling, as you were going along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I, I wrote this book as a reader, and I wrote the kind of book that I would want to read. And um, one, one of my, 
mantras through the book was, well, if it's if it's boring to write it, it's boring to read it. So I just get myself entertained. Well, you keep the reader entertained too. And one of the things I think uh, uh, an effective technique you use throughout the book are what I call kind of potted biographies. There's like mm-hmm. little stories. And this is a book all about different stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, Sarah's telling herself one story and she's kind of telling us another one, but she leaves a lot out. And as we find out, the things she's leaving out, our jaws drop periodically. <laughs> and it's very, very intense and entertaining. So I'd like you to talk about creating these little potted biographies. We, for example, there's Tracy, Lil's backstory. Uh, there's the backstory of the of a character who has fallen victim to drug abuse and is taken by her boyfriend. There's all sorts of like these little, and there's a couple we meet who are kind of on the side of things. Talk about creating these little biographies as, yeah. a, as a means of plotting. Well, uh, one of the one of the things I wanted this book to be about is just this idea of w- women's narratives. You know, sometimes the, these the women are telling their own narratives, and the and Sarah gives those backstories. But I I just like the idea of having having their story. Like this is it. This is you know this is this is their life. This is what brought them to this point, and um, and this is what motivates them. Just you know, a nice time capsule because I didn't think it was enough when you're dealing with these kinds of issues, uh, these psychological issues, you need to have an understanding of where they came from and why they, I wanted people to understand why they each had a very different response to the events because they each dealt with the trauma differently. So I thought that was an effective device. And, you know, I was also just talking about women's narratives one thing that I was very careful about and and hoped that I did all the way through, but I, I was my goal was that any time there was violence against women happening in the book, it was that woman who told the story. Um, because I do think that in general, healing from trauma, so much of that is a, is about controlling your narrative and telling your story. So I thought that was a you know a a, a good way to first of all not have those women women be objects, but rather have them be the subject of their own narrative. Well, that's one of the things, too, I think that makes this such a compelling novel, is that it's a work of crime fiction from a really uh, uncommon uh, perspective. Usually where we might be giving the story from the villain's point of view or maybe from a vigilante's point of view, you give us the victim's story. Yeah, I th- yeah because I think, um, I think it, it's, always, it's been the interesting one to me. Because that that's where the the psychological complexities come from, and so one of the main motivators for writing the book was thinking about, okay, what is a detective character usually like? You know, the typical detective, they almost always have some demons to overcome. They have some 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 flaws, and and um, they're working through issues. Often, it's you know, they're an alcoholic, or very often it's a you know a man who's a commitment phobe even though of course women are drawn to him <laughs> inexplicably drawn to him uh, and so i thought well you know women often have you know have these much more difficult demons to deal with in their past and so you're 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 setting that up right at the beginning as something that's very very meaningful and compelling and difficult so I thought that was that was an interesting new kind of thing. I feel like I hadn't seen it. It's something I've been interested in seeing. Uh, let's talk about the the three victims uh, of the original crime. When we at the beginning of the book, there's uh, a cellar. There are three women chained up in the cellar. There's one in the box. This is not a happy place to be. No. Uh, so our narrator uh, Sarah tell us about her reaction uh, once she's out what what has she done in her 10 years and, and how how that character shaped out for you a little bit uh, yes her her response to it is basically to she has post-traumatic stress disorder and she also um, has some a number of other phobias one of them being the, the fear of human touch so she is really retreating from the world 
and you know doesn't want to take any chances and she becomes basically a recluse in her apartment and she lives in New York City so she's able to order everything in it's a very good city to be a recluse in <laughs> so she's ver- she's very fearful and and damaged in that way she's going to a lot of therapy but she's very much stuck in her therapy and not making progress and feels like she can certainly talk about the events. It's not that she's afraid to talk about the events, but she's not able to connect with that story anymore emotionally. She can just say the words, but she has distanced herself from it. She's basically had dissociation from the experience. Now, tell us a little bit about Tracy. She's had a very different reaction. Yeah, Tracy had uh, had more of the rebellious reaction, and uh, she's tough. Tracy's tough. She was tough when she was young. She had a tough childhood, and she responds accordingly, and she becomes a, a, a real activist for women, and she she runs a, a journal that's, you know, very a feminist journal. So she's she's taking the strong approach. Now, whether... She might have some feelings underneath that she hasn't dealt with, (laughs) remains to be seen. Christine, the third character, is she completely uh, pretends that it hasn't happened. She hasn't told anybody in her life what the story is. She's changed her name. She's walked away from it. She's repressing the experience as, as hard as she can. She just doesn't, she wants to put it behind her and move forward. And again, whether you can really just do that is another question that gets explored in the book. One of the things I thought that was very effective about this book was uh, it's, a, it's a novel of horror. In many ways, you could just easily describe it as a horror novel. We have our monster, who's Jack Dersher. He's definitely monstrous. But I think that even though it's a book where people are held in captivity, there's uh, torture that that actually to a very slight degree happens on the page. It's extremely restrained, and we don't really see much happening. You do a great job at implying terror, but never really describing it. But it, that's, it's a lid throughout the novel. Yeah, it was really important to me that this not be a book of torture porn. That's, that's not really the point to me. Um, and so I... I but at the same time, if you really want the, car- the reader to identify with what these women have been through, you do have to explain it a little bit. So I, what I tr- it's a very delicate balance, but I try to hint at it, suggest it, you know, give the reader enough so they, they, they know what's going on, but I don't describe it in, a, in detail because I don't think it's necessary, and I, I don't want to be exploitative. That was an important point to me. <laughs> well, I, I thought you did a great job of uh, keeping the darkness psychological. And, and Yeah, because it's all about how they responded to these events and how they're still managing to respond to them. It's not the actual events themselves. Uh, the man who perpetrates this deed is, is a really interesting character, too, in that he's not really in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, that's because the book isn't really about him. <laughs> uh, to me, this when you think about trauma, what trauma is is it's um it's a it's a real splitting. It's because the the psyche cannot handle what's happening. It's overwhelmed, and so in order to deal with it, there's a splitting that occurs so that you can deal with it, and then the things that are truly horrible, you just push back in your mind, and you have to deal with it later. So trauma is sort of, by definition, something that you're dealing with later, over and over. That's why people have flashbacks, which is another reason why I wanted to have a lot of flashbacks in the book. So that sort of informed the structure as well. But, um, but to me, so the book is, deal- is, is, is more of Sarah's flashbacks. It's more of Sarah, Sarah dealing with her memory of the events rather than dealing with him. So the, the, the enemy of the book isn't necessarily Jack. The enemy is, the, is her memory of Jack and what he's done to her and what he's done to her psyche. So that's why I didn't, I didn't find it necessary to have a, a, a lot of direct scenes with him because he's kind of, he's out of the picture. She's dealing with something much harder t- to, to handle, which is herself. Sarah starts out the uh, novel as a pure victim. 
but by the as the novel progresses, she moves into the uh, amateur sleuth mode, and I think this is an interesting transition for you to make, and I think you make it convincingly for her. And as readers, we feel really really rewarded as we see her change. I'd like you to talk about you know the way you affected the changes in her character and also in the characters around her. She carries people with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, again, I think she she definitely has sort of two steps forward, one step back moments. You know, she's, she's pushing herself and sometimes successfully and sometimes not successfully. And she really... She gives herself a pretty hard time. She's not she's not that easy on herself when she when she, you know, fails at it. She's berating herself when she's having psychological trouble. She's like, you know, what's what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? And to to me, that's a that's a very realistic image of of how we all operate. I think, and we're in the world. And if you are dealing with the after effects of some kind of trauma or bad experience, and you think. Why can't I just get over this? Why can't I just get it together? What's what's my problem? You know, I think this is a very very common thing, and so that's one of the things that she has. So her progress is not super straightforward, but she does begin to see. Oh, okay. As she faces each fragment of her past, she does start to feel a little stronger and a little stronger, saying, "Okay, I can." I can handle this because she's she's doing something real now. She's not just sitting in a room telling the stories of what happened. Uh, as a reader, the, some of the parts I enjoyed the most were the parts where she uh, she will tell us something that, in a way that we know, that lets us know that there's something we don't know. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of <laughs> negative, double negative evidence. And I think that's a very interesting uh, technique you use. Well, you know, it's... What I, what I, it's really hard to write a crime novel in first person because, you know, in order to create suspense, you, you can't tell the reader everything. And so you have to be doling out your knowledge uh, as you go along, the things you want the reader to know versus the things that your character knows. And the bigger problem of things that you wish you could tell your reader, but your character doesn't know. <laughs> so <laughs> so you're, you're very much limited. But it, it's actually, I think, a good thing to work within those constraints because then you are forced to come up with interesting ways of dealing with it. But I've seen other writers use the technique effectively, and you realize, okay, my narrator does not have to tell the reader everything. No, she's not thinking everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a book that also deals with legalities, uh, and there are many of them, and usually laws broken. <laughs> uh, as a lawyer, how much of your... and entertainment world law uh, was brought into this piece just in terms of maybe in terms of the ambience or I don't know I don't think there's very much entertainment law in there for sure (laughs) Um, there's a little criminal law I mean I think you definitely have a different perspective on the law when you are a lawyer and you understand how the game is played and how you know even though certain things might not seem fair within the justice system you understand how they end up to be that way so that was helpful but um but it's definitely i wouldn't call it a legal thriller no yeah no no it's a psychological (laughs) psychological thriller so the law the law parts are in there as necessary to further the plot and and no more one of the things i like about this novel is that you get that horror and awe are mated together, that one is the inverse of the other, one doesn't work well without the other. I'd like you to talk about that because there are some parts where there is a little bit of awe in the how far things can go. Mm. Well, I'll tell you that um, in my research for this book, I read about a lot of very shocking things that go on in the world, and I would just keep forcing myself to do them in a way, I guess maybe I'm trying to desensitize myself to them so that they don't scare me as much. But I definitely now see the world as an even darker place. And I kept thinking as I was doing my research that I, that I couldn't be shocked anymore, that I couldn't I couldn't have seen, I, I must have seen the most horrible things that people do to one another, and, and yet I'm always surprised. So... 
you know, I think that's sort of my perspective now is I, I believe that these truly, truly gruesome things are going on in the world. And I'm, I'm always shocked when people are so shocked when they come to light. (laughs) Speaking of coming to light, that there was this, uh, a recent case where three women were freed from a situation that's not unlike the one you describe. I would like you to just talk about how that must have felt to you happening. As the book is coming out, you've long ago finished the book. Mm -hmm. So that must have been an odd space for you to inhabit. It was really, it was very intense. I was shocked, even though I, I know that these things happen, and I, you know, because I, I know about the, uh, most of the main, you know, the big abduction stories that have happened, it wasn't surprising to me that somebody, that, that multiple people were held captive together. But certainly the fact that it was the three women uh, was so similar to my book that I, obviously I was, I was very shocked. I had tons of people reaching out to me saying oh my god you know this is this is just like your book and I had um you know the press saying why don't you come and write something about this because you know about it and I would say listen I don't I have no expertise here you know my book is about my experience of these stories and the way that I feel about them but my book is fiction their lives are real and I would never presume to know what that's truly like and um but yet I felt I think uh, you know I I was so devastated by these stories because I do think that I've developed a particular kind of empathy for women who have gone through these experiences because I've read so many of their stories and my brain was inhabiting that space for so long while I worked on the book so I just felt um really felt their their loss um, but I think that, you know, like most people, I, the thing that kept coming back to me as I kept thinking about what I had been, what my life had been like for the 10 years that they'd been held in captivity and all the different things that had happened. I'd had my children and I'd lived in three different apartments and had, you know, three or four different jobs. And just you think about the accumulation of those experiences. And then all the while, while that was happening, you know, what was going on with those women. And I had the same experience of thinking about Elizabeth Fritzel, the Austrian who was held for 24 years, and um, she just kept thinking that was that was it. That was her life. Those walls. So, you know, it's been. Um, I'm I'm so happy for these women, and I, I know they're going to have a long journey to rebuild their lives, and I hope that they're able to do that. This book too keys on something I think that. Uh, is really interesting to humans in general is the idea that somebody can just disappear out of your life out of out of everything and all of a sudden they're gone from your life this idea of disappearances I'd like you to talk about that just as a phenomenon and how it informs this book because these are people who have been perceived to have been disappeared but they are on the other side of that disappearing yeah well I, I mean I think it's the scariest thing imaginable and and as a parent I I can't think of it from that perspective you know that's too scary too scary it's to me much less scary I'm much more comfortable in the space of imagining being the the victim the one who's doing it at least you know what's happening at least you you know you can deal with that experience and um so you know there is a scene where she is talking about being reunited with her mother after she's escaped and that scene would always basically make me cry when I would read it because I just I, you know her, her daughter had been returned to her having all this psychological damage and this inability to connect with people and the mother felt so powerless and and you know to her this was her daughter but her daughter part of her was gone so that was always a very painful scene to me. You also write about a, a, a couple uh, later in the book, and you describe them as another sort of victim. And this is something I've long thought about, I'm really interested in, 
the kind of ancillary victims to these crimes. Yeah. People who might know somebody who's done terrible things and not known them as somebody who did terrible things until those terrible things were revealed. You might know somebody you hang out with at a sports bar. You see the guy once a week, have a beer. Hey, Joe. Hey, Rick. Find out 10 years later that Joe's been doing something awful. And that makes those people victims too. Yeah. No, I. Uh, that's that's a... A, a big theme in the book, actually, is um, I'm very interested in the way that sort of one evil perpetrator, you know, you think of the victim as being, there's the primary victim, but there is inevitably a huge web of victims. Um, and that's not just true in these cases, but, you know, in, you know, anytime there's trauma, you know, trauma begets trauma. And I'm always thinking about the way that that flows through the generations and affects other relationships. And so it's sort of a this this spider web of damage um, that to me, I just always think it's, it's such a horrible shame that one person can affect so many lives and, and create so much damage when you know, they do something to one other person. It's interesting, too, the way I think you do a good job of showing the different psychological nuances of the kind of damage that occurs, that um, Sarah has one kind of uh, set of symptoms and Tracy another, but other people have symptoms that are perhaps more subtle, but nonetheless as devastating to them from within. Yeah. No, it, yeah. I th- yeah, there are obviously a lot of different ways that people can be damaged and and then in turn you know sometimes by accident not you know not purposely but damage the other people within in their lives so um i guess these it's not exactly even cycles of abuse it's just the um spiraling outward of pain yeah there there a lot of the characters are they're, they're affected by some of the backstory that you don't learn about until later. <laughs> right, the, the fractal nature of crime. Exactly. <laughs> uh, part of this novel involves the uh, BDSM underworld, and uh, the, this is uh, creepy in and of itself. It doesn't need this novel to help become <laughs> even more terrorizing. Uh, not easy to write about. Uh, how much did you find out about this, and how much did you just say, "Okay, I'm, I got this. I got this covered." Well, I actually did a lot of research on BDSM, and um, and I have, um, you know, complicated feelings about it because I I am actually completely supportive of BDSM as a practice, and I think if it's consenting adults that's great. Everyone should be free to do what they want to do. But I think what's interesting about BDSM is that, you know, it's it's a complex relationship between consent, giving consent in an area that's all, in a realm that's all about giving up all of your power. And so there are a lot of blurred lines in there. And that's really what drew me to, to, to explore BDSM and to include it in the book. It's not so much, I, I certainly wasn't going after anything prurient in doing it. And I should also say I, this, this book was finished before Fifty Shades of Grey came out, and so I was I was not influenced by that book. <laughs> but um, uh, but to do the research, I have been in some some interesting clubs down in New Orleans when I was in college, so I have seen some things firsthand. But uh, now I'm a, a big scaredy cat, so everything else that I did on the book was um, uh, research online. And I would go to every crazy chat room and website and, um, you know, really explore, get down into the comments and, you know, see what that world was really like. And I kept thinking that I'd seen it all and I'd seen it all. And then, you know, I'd come upon somebody who, they call themselves Slave Jack, and they are giving advice about how to find a, a master that you can hire to train to train you to be a submissive and you know then he would talk about the things that needed to be done to be trained and I would say okay I guess I can be shocked you know meanwhile my computer was completely filled with viruses after this <laughs> research <laughs> and, 
my husband said, you have to, you have to stop. You have to stop. You're ruining the computers. Uh, we also have uh, an FBI agent in here, uh, Jim McCordy, and I'd like you to talk about, he, he plays an interesting role in this book, a and the FBI in general plays a kind of interesting role there. Uh, it's not like that old show. <laughs> um, well, you mean in that they they don't seem at the top of their game? They, no, they're not so much at the top <laughs> of their game. And, and uh, I think that they seem as almost as manipulative as some of the people who are manipulating uh, those around them for unhappy purposes. Yeah. Well, I think that... Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to get across about the FBI was was just more the bureaucracy and the cost cutting and the resource, you know, limited resources. And so, you know, we're these these guys were in this in this book. They're dealing with a very old case, and they think that, you know, the expedient answer here is for Sarah to provide her victim impact statement, and and this case will be wrapped up, and he'll stay in jail, and that's the most efficient use of resources here. And so for her to want to go and open things up is um, that's, that's, that's just going to be costly and it's unnecessary. And by the way, it probably is unnecessary. Probably maybe her, maybe the victim impact statement would have been enough, but she's really doing it more for herself. So in, in fact, she's always dragging the FBI along saying, you know, come on, do this. And I think they're they're more practical as as I think most most law enforcement is. They know what they need to do to achieve the end result. Sure, yeah, they're they're just looking to to get the clear the case. Clear the case yeah. and once it's cleared, uh get the victim statement. That's it. They don't yeah. want victims running around. Yeah. Uh, we also meet uh, some some academics in this book. Uh, Adele, who's a particularly interesting academic, I'd like you to talk about creating that character. Uh, she was she was a very fun character um, to create because she's just driven by her ambition, and um, you know she. Uh, it, it, I enjoyed writing characters who were were not just about you know oh I'm trying to find a man or trying to you know juggle their career and the family, you know, I thought, okay, I just want this, I just want her to be, she is so focused on her job and her career and, and building her resume and her studies. And so um, I thought that was, that was interesting and to, to have somebody who's uh, single-minded and, and in order to achieve those things is willing to be incredibly manipulative um, and, and uh, make Sarah do some things that are very uncomfortable for her because she's interested in her as a subject. Uh, one of the things I have to say I really liked about this book was there is no uh, love story arc. Yeah. <laughs> no, there is no boy meets girl in this, or if there is, that's, <laughs> that's... if there is, it's very, very, very minor. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, I guess I I just wasn't interested in in putting one in there. I to me there were well, lots thank you of for not doing that. Yeah, there <laughs> there were lots of other interesting ideas that I that I wanted to play with and pursue, and um, that wasn't one of them. And so I did not feel obligated to to put one in there. I'm wondering. It, it seems to me there's a, a potential for for more books uh, along these lines. I, I'm wondering. Do you have plans? Do you have any in your mind, or? Yeah, I, I do actually. Um, I know I know what I would want to do as a sequel, um, but my next book is going to be a standalone. But I, because I, I want to see, well, how does this one do, and if people are interested in a sequel, because I, I love these characters, and it's it's very. I enjoy spending time with them, so I wouldn't mind continuing I'd, on. <laughs> I'd be happy to see them. Do you know? Tell us about your standalone. Um, well, I I don't want to talk about it too much because I'm just paranoid about mm -hmm. those things. But I'll just say that it deals with some uh, some of the similar some some themes are the same, but it's from a totally different perspective. The characters are very very different, um, but it is 
pretty twisted. Well, I can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I really liked about this novel is that it it's, ex- leaves the reader in a constant state of paranoia. From the second you open this book and read the, essentially the first sentence and think, oh my God, something like that could happen, and we know that to be true, to the very end uh, where this book kind of remaps our world and says, you know what? It's really bad out there. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, but in a way I think I probably feel that way all the time. <laughs> so I, I've just brought the reader into my own world of paranoia. Um, I, th- I think I've gotten a little bit better as I've gotten older, but definitely I, I'm watchful, of, of, you know, and, and I look at the world and I, I don't assume that what I'm seeing is, is the way things really are. Do you have your own never list? I don't. I never really had anything formalized, but um, really, the uh, Jennifer and Sarah's friendship is very loosely based on my friendship with my best friend, and from when we were very young. And we had a we had a lot of strict rules that we lived by, and that was sort of the genesis of the Never List. You know, we, uh, we you know never do this, and I for me in particular. I'm really terrified of parked cars, um, whether it's some, got somebody in there, doesn't have somebody. It just seems like a, it's an ominous image to me. And walking through a parking lot to get to the car, it, you know, it seems to, it, it's just an object that holds a lot of fear because things can be in the trunk, things can be in the back seat. It's, um, so whenever I go to get in my car, I always look in the back seat. Look in the floorboard. As soon as I get into the car, I lock it immediately. So I do have some some issues surrounding cars. <laughs> Sage advice from Kothi Zan. <laughs> I've been speaking with Kothi Zan. Her new novel is The Neverlist. Thank you for joining me, Kothi. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.